Good morning. Today, as we're turning in our Bibles to 2 Chronicles 26, you're going to find a man who started extremely well and ended extremely poorly. And if you ever have come across people who made a profession of faith, perhaps in the earlier years, and seem to have a tremendous amount of blessing upon their lives in the early years, you want to track, you want to process and ask, what's happened? What's changed? Why? Why not? Have they merely created an external religion without that internal dynamic of the work of the Holy Spirit within them? What's going on? So I want to pick up on that whole question, those lines of questions that we posed as we look now at Second Chronicles chapter 26. And what I want to do, I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 5. And then we're going to jump over to verse 16 and continue on in our reading because I want to get a sense of the beginning and a sense of the end of what's happening here. Beginnings and ends. And so in verse 1 of this 26th chapter, you and I are told that all the people of Judah took Isaiah who was 16 years old and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Aloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. Now his mother's name is Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now drop down to verse 16. Carry on. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to build, to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That's for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, They saw he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave, because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his fathers and was buried near them in a field for burial that belonged to the kings. For people said, 
he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. So I want to talk with you this morning a little bit about the whole challenge of starting well but ending poorly and ask why that happens. What are the reasons? What are the dynamics? And what can we do to self-discipline ourselves to keep it from happening as we look to our Lord in prayer? Our Father, what we want to do is to thank you for being our guide. When we see Isaiah entering into that temple, there's obviously restrictions on access. And we live in a society that doesn't like restrictions. There are those who might wonder out loud, why should there be only one way to God? Why can't there be many different ways to God? But we know the issue is not why is there only one way? The real issue is why is there any way? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches us. And the fact that you have provided us even singular access to you is a statement of grace. And the restrictions themselves are symbols of grace when you owe us no access. And so, Lord, we want with humble hearts now and minds filled with biblical truth to be able to engage in what you've written here. We want to be able to absorb what you've said, ponder what you've said, wrestle with what you've said, apply what you've said to make a difference in our lives. And you know our lives. You know our needs. You know the public and the private spheres of our everyday living. And I thank you, Father, that as the God of grace, you break in and you gave us Jesus who died for our sins. So what we want to do now in these minutes together is, before you, again allowing our hearts to be warmed by the work of the Holy Spirit, our minds fully engaged with your word, your truth. Our wills in a position to be challenged, if necessary, by your word to develop a realignment of our lives. We come here again now to see Jesus, and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years back, Pam and I and Benjamin, our son, one of our sons, was down in Puerto Rico. There was a particular game that Ben was going to be obviously taking the mound and pitching, and we got there a little bit earlier to get a good place to be able to watch and observe. There was an older man out on the field. He looked roughly now in his early 80s, sinewy, small, thin, but tough, strong. What struck me was the way in which the people in that area, the coaches in particular, paid incredible respect to him as an individual. His nickname was Poppy. Poppy. 
And as I talked to one of the coaches, I found out that Poppy was an outstanding shortstop for various teams in Puerto Rico through his early years. But he still loved the game, and he viewed himself as the primary groundskeeper of the fields. As we watched him manicure that, that field and take proper care of it just prior to the start of the game, there were two singular thoughts that stood out in my mind as I watched and observed. As he began to lay down the foul lines, down the right field line and the left field line, and then as he worked around the batter's box, putting out the chalk so that people can make the necessary distinctions between what's fair and what's foul, two things stood out. One, he started early. Two, he marked clearly. He set the parameters, he set the boundaries. He started early. He marked clearly. Wise parents do this in the early years of raising children. They set the boundaries, the parameters, what's fair, what's foul. They start early and they mark clearly. There was a visual aid that was unfolding in front of my very eyes as I began to think of the ways in which to relate to modern day society. Because what God has done is that he's established what's in and what's out. He's made distinctions between the true and the false, the right and the wrong. But the challenge of our society is that it wants to expand the playing field to the point where everything's in and nothing's out. Which leads us to this story. A story of a man who had to wrestle with what I'm going to call the grace of boundaries. The grace of boundaries that God has given and how essential they are when we understand that he has, that he has started early, before time began, he has marked clearly for our own survival so that we are better prepared then to be able to live wholeheartedly for our Lord. So what I want to do is to draw out two significant markings in these verses that I think relate to modern day life as we now once again build a bridge between the past into the 2013 present. The first is found in verse 1 down really through verse 15. We're going to phrase it like this, number one, that when we seek the Lord... We experience, we experience his blessings. When you are willing to live within those right field lines and left field lines, so to speak, and you are seeking the Lord, well, you are positioning yourself to experience God's blessings. But ask yourself right now, where am I positioning myself within the boundary markers? 
Now, pick it up in verse 1 of this 26th chapter, where you and I are now informed that all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was incredibly enough, 16 years old, made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. Amaziah. If you want to underline that name, we're going to ponder the connection of these two generations of boundary markers. Because we're told in, verse, in the next verse that he was the one who rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Eloth was a pivotal place that allowed for commerce to be able to travel through. And now Uzziah has expanded, so to speak, the parameters of Israel's boundaries. But it's verses 4 and 5 that seize our attention. And there are three significant distinctives about Uzziah that stand out for me, where in the early years he was prone to seek the Lord. You see them? In verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, comma, comma, just as his father Amaziah had done. Now, you're a thinking person. Right away, you're going to ask yourself, and if he did this in the same way that his father Amaziah did it, how did Amaziah do it? Flip back one chapter and check out verse 2 with me where we're informed he, speaking of Amaziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, comma, but not wholeheartedly. Now, if Uzziah is following in the footprints of his father, we've got to understand those footprints of his father in verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, comma, just as his father Amaziah had done. In other words, this was done without a complete, holy, devoted, heartfelt commitment to the Messiah we know as Jesus Christ. There's your first qualifier. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, comma, just as his father Amaziah had done. But now a second qualifier, verse 5. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, comma, who instructed him in the fear of God. Question. What happens when Zechariah is no longer on the scene? What happens when Zechariah is no longer Uzziah's accountability partner? What happens if Zechariah dies or gets relocated, takes a different position? Then what happens to the spiritual well-being of Uzziah? Does Uzziah have the spiritual discipline to take the external accountability and produce an internal accountability to God? Because too often we settle on external accountability in the horizontal realm and have an underdeveloped internal accountability in the vertical realm. And what happens when the Zacharias of this world are removed from our lives? Will we still seek 
God. It's the objective of a parent to help a child internalize the boundaries that initially have been externalized. Because somewhere along the way, that child will be responsible before God. The parent will not be responsible for that child before God. Parents pass away. Generally speaking, children grow up. And when that occurs, then, the accountability structure has got to be understood. The question is this. Does Uzziah have what I might call at this point an arrested accountability structure that is all externalized, not internalized, that's horizontalized, but not vertilized, so to speak? Now, questions being posed. Is he going to get the vertical right? But now, here's a third qualifier. You're still there in verse 5. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Which leads you to think, this story is going to unfold, and I may reach a point in the reading where he is no longer seeking God. What you've got to do now is to look at the qualifiers of your life. Ask yourself, is there simply a half-hearted rather than wholehearted devotion to God? Ask yourself, does my spirituality depend upon the Zacharias of my life or upon the Lord Jesus Christ over my life? Ask yourself, am I setting myself up for a short-term or a long-term obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson would have put it in one of his writings. Three qualifiers there that have to do with this whole idea of seeking, seeking, seeking the Lord. Which leads us right back to that passage of Scripture I'd ask that would appear on the screen right now that you and I know is taken from 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, that we've been pondering through the course of our, of our studies together this year. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and what? Seek my face. Not seek Zechariah's face. Seek God's face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So I want you now with me, and I'm putting myself through this spiritual discipline as well, this matter of seeking the Lord. Take the qualifiers now and press them into your own personal experience. He did what was right as his father, Amaziah, did, which was Half-hearted, not full-hearted. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, but there comes a time when there's no Zechariah. Then what? He did so as long as he sought the Lord. He experienced success. But what happens when we stop seeking the Lord? I'm reminded of the story of Barnabas Shaw, who is a missionary in Africa. He was ministering in the Cape Town area and then all of a sudden found out from the authorities that his ministry was no longer going to be permitted there and so he had to move inward, inland. 
He took this simply as God's sovereign will and plan and began then packing his family and belongings and they made their trek inland on the continent of Africa. Here's the astounding story unfolding. As Shaw and family were making their way inland, an entire tribe led by a rather tall man with a scepter in his hands were moving southward until the two companies met. The chieftain with the scepter paused and spoke in a way in which was understandable to Barnabas Shaw We are seeking God. Tell us where we can find God. Now what strikes me about that scene is that this entire tribe was willing to put themselves on an uncomfortable journey for the sake of seeking that who matters most. Question. Are you willing to put yourself, if necessary, on an uncomfortable journey for the sake of seeking the one who matters most? Even if the boundaries seem to start to feel like they are hemming you in. Seek the Lord, but beware of the qualifiers found in verse 4 and 5. Now, what we were saying here is that when we seek the Lord, we we experience His blessings, and Uzziah experienced blessings while he sought the Lord. If you begin to look, for example, at verses 6 down through 8, you and I are informed that he went to war against the Philistines, broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, Ashdod. He would have been a hero in the eyes of the people of Judah. For this is what their forefather David was able to do against the Philistines. Recapture lost ground. When you and I are seeking the Lord... By His grace, we find ourselves recapturing lost ground in our lives. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in in Gibeah and against the Mayanites. So much so the Ammonites, in verse 8, brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because, because he had become very powerful And you're going to want to underline that phrase, very powerful. Now what stands out to me thus far is that in verses 4 and 5, we have grouped together three significant qualifiers regarding this seeking of the Lord, haven't we? And furthermore, what you and I are finding is that this man in his earlier years is experiencing tremendous blessing. But now, what I want to say is this. Do not confuse God's blessings with personal achievements. Over the course of time, 
it is very possible for us to begin to forget the source of blessing and begin to assume that this is our doing, not God's. Beware of this subtle transition in the soul. Read on. In verse 9, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall, he fortified them. Notice all the he's. He also built towers in the desert and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Makes us think of some of our founding fathers in this nation, like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Loved the soil. But notice all the attainments in the eyes of the general population here. And what will this do to Uzziah's heart? And what would it do to our hearts? Bear in mind, we noticed here, he had become very powerful. Pick up in verse 11. Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jael, the secretary and Masaiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. Look at the numbers. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men. We're, We're meant to be impressed, in other words. Trained for war. Powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, slingshots for the entire army. What's interesting is that in time period, that time period, generally speaking, military personnel were responsible for finding their own, acquiring their own. Here, Uzziah is providing this for them. They must be impressed with their king. Notice furthermore, That in verse 15, in Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for the use on towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. This, in their time period, would have been a modern military invention. A catapulting of stones and such over the wall against the enemies vulnerable out on the plains. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became, mark this, he became powerful. So you want to draw a line now, if you will, from verse 8 down through verse 15. Because both verses end with the fact that he became powerful. This is critically important. So now we've noticed that thus far, he sought the Lord in his earlier days, but there were three qualifiers that we've noticed here in the seeking of the Lord. And the danger, the subtle dangers, the appearances here, was that they were externalized, not internalized. They were horizontalized, they were not verticalized. And where will this leave him? Now, what I want to say at this point is that his power became his point of vulnerability. Now, the wise person 
takes time and assesses where he or she, not necessarily in the midst of the trials of life, but in the blessings of life, are vulnerable. And we assume that our armor sufficiently covers our Achilles heels. Where are your points of vulnerability? Now remind yourself now, Uzziah is a highly externalized man and a highly horizontalized man. I would argue that somewhere in those two realms is where he is going to find himself extremely vulnerable. Let's look now at verse 16 through 23. And this leads us to the second major marker. When we become proud before the Lord, we cross God's boundaries and experience his discipline. We cross his boundaries and then we begin to experience his discipline. Notice how verse 16 begins to unfold, and you want to keep it closely, tightly connected to verse 15. In 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, underline that phrase, it's the third time it's utilized. His pride led to his downfall. Camp on that for a moment. Generally speaking, as pride increases, seeking decreases. Expand it. Generally speaking, as our pride before God increases, our seeking of God decreases. And we become defiant with regard to his authority over our lives. And we want to set the boundaries for our lives. He has become internationally famous, increasingly powerful, self-secure, but not necessarily God-secure. But remember, he is highly external and highly if you will, horizontal. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And you are a thinker, and immediately your mind goes back to that powerful statement regarding Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll rise, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds, I'll make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit, it's said of Satan. Contrast that to the direction in which Paul would have our lives go in relationship to Jesus Christ. 
Your attitude ought to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, he wrote in chapter 2 of Philippians. Where now in verse 6 adds, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I thought of an incredible introduction that was given to an outstanding leader, Dr. Samuel Brengel, prior to him getting up to speak. Later, as Brengel looked back on that experience, he wrote, If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, he used it. And the moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Uzziah, you're losing sight of the face of the Lord. Seek the Lord, Uzziah. Seek him. But something happens now where down beneath the surface, pride has connected itself to power. He has overlooked and become blinded to his point of vulnerability. And so we are now told in the second part of verse 16, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. In other words, what I'm arguing now is that when we become proud, We cross God's boundaries. How has he done that here? Because God had made a very clear boundary marker that a king was not to do the work of the high priest. And he would be able to go back in his scriptures and be able to look very carefully as to what God had written, say in Numbers chapter 16 verse 40, or 18, 1 through 7, and find out that that was the responsibility of the priest, not the king. Now the question is, why would God restrict the king so that he couldn't do the work of the priest? There is only one who is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ. God restricts the boundaries to remind us you nor I are God. And the boundaries are there as a visual illustration not of God's anger towards us, but rather of God's love for us. 
Go back in your mind to Genesis 2 and 3 and think boundaries with me for a moment. Adam, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, I want you to realize how much freedom was there. He didn't say multiple trees. Just one. All the other trees you're free to eat. In other words, God is not a cosmic killjoy. There is tremendous liberty when you live under His authority. But that's not how society sees it. And that's not how Satan wanted Eve to see it. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan begins to play with the boundaries. Are you playing with the boundaries right now in your own personal life? Because in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty, literally in the Hebrew, alluring than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, question, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Subtlety. Did God say you must not eat from any? In other words now, he has expanded the restriction and placed it upon everything. You must not eat from any tree, not just one. Now, the woman's in a position where she's going to have to defend God's moral law, which I see happening for Christians now in 2013. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees and the God, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Notice now she's starting to fixate upon a boundary and then adds this. And you must not touch it or you'll surely die. Did God say you must not touch it? No. No. She's just added to Scripture, so to speak. And one of the great dangers in 2013 living is when believers add to the Scriptures so that society now feels like Christian experience is an overly restrictive form of spirituality. Allow the Scriptures to stand. Don't add to. Don't subtract from. Now he responds quickly and adamantly and authoritatively, you will not truly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, now what God has tried to do is to offer visual reminder, just a singular tree, Adam, Eve, you're not God. But man, is there a tremendous amount of liberty when you are living according to my authority and under it. And the 2013 issue nationally still is the tension of the Garden of Eden matter, authority and liberty, and who sets the boundaries. 
personally, nationally? Is it God? Or is it us? So Uzziah now is stretching the boundaries. Azariah, verse 17, the priest and 80 other courageous, mark that, priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. Here is a clear confrontation about the remaking of boundaries. But it's got to have a biblical base. That's for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary. If you've been unfaithful, you will not be honored by the Lord God. It was the playoffs. I'm sitting in Fisher Hall with a number of other friends, and we're watching two football teams, fairly evenly matched. And I'm furthermore watching off to the side because we have some international students in our midst who are trying to figure out football. We're trying to explain things to them. I love the game. But I also am keeping an eye on them because I'm curious. And they're asking great questions. So I'm leaning forward. It's the third quarter and all of a sudden now, Pittsburgh is on the offense, and their quarterback, Terry Bradshaw, fades back and then finds his receiver downfield right along the sideline. The sideline. Ball's caught. But now all of a sudden, there's an incredible dispute where both feet in. Or was one foot in, one foot out? The commentators are divided. The referees have to come together. Even those after the game was over in the sports press were still debating this one. It was the comment from one of the international students that caught my attention. This time out where the referees were in intense discussion was occurring... When all of a sudden, one of the students looked over in my direction and said, in broken English, why don't they just expand the width of the playing field? Totally sincere. Eyes blinking. Totally incredulous. As if now, right in the midst of the game, you can rework the boundaries. And this is what's happening in America. Nothing new. This was Garden of Eden. This was Uzziah. This is modern day life. Who has authority over the playing field? Who determines what's in, what's out? Pam and I, our minds go back to Poppy in Puerto Rico. Hunched over. The markings are being made now on the baseball field. He starts early. Before the game even began. 
marks clearly. So there ought to be no confusion in the midst of the game. God, before Uzziah's time, started early and marked clearly the same as for us as well. It reduces the stress. It allows us to understand God's will. We see grace in the boundaries. But Uzziah at this point has been so horizontalized and so externalized, and there's no Zechariah now on the scene as his accountability partner. His responsibility, Uzziah's, was is to take all that and to internalize it and to verticalize it. How will he respond to confrontation over boundaries? We're told here, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging at the priests, in verse 19, in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. What I want to say to you is that leprosy is external. In essence, God is saying, if you're an external type of guy and have not internalized my boundaries, I will provide you with an external marking so that you understand my boundaries. In other words, in other words, God is communicating in visual language that was unmistakable. In Leviticus 13, 45, you and I are informed, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkept, cover the lower parts of his face, cry out, unclean, unclean, and as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean, he must live alone, he must live outside the camp. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw he had leprosy on his forehead, They hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave. All of a sudden, now he wants out. Because the Lord had afflicted him. The same God who blesses is the God who bruises. There's grace in the blessing and there's grace in the bruising. He loves you. Notice he didn't afflict Uzziah with death, but with leprosy. Uzziah could say, you're overly restrictive. There ought to be a role for a king to do this as well as a priest. Why isn't there greater access? Uzziah. The real question is, why is there any access? Why isn't there complete restriction? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we, he owes us no access. The very fact that there are boundary markers is a reminder of his grace. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died, and he lived in a separate house, leprous, excluded from the temple of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, had charge of his palace, governed the people of the land, a co-regency. And the other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And Uzziah rested with his father, was buried near them in a field for burial that belonged to the kings. For the people said, 
Man, did he achieve a lot in his early years, right? No. That's been forgotten. What did they say? He had leprosy. He had leprosy. How will they remember you in your later years? Because they tend not to remember the beginnings as much as they remember the endings. Look at this passage appearing on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord, not Uzziah, seated on the throne. A sense of relief. The Uzziahs come, the Uzziahs go, but the Lord remains. This is a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ. High and exalted. But what I want you to see is what comes next. And the train of His robe filled the what? Temple. And though King Uzziah was expelled from the temple... The one who came and fulfilled the will, the word, the law of the Lord, kept in obedience before him the sovereign plan of the triune God of this universe. And the train of his robe fills that temple. And now you and I are overawed with the fact that when we seek the Lord, we experience his blessings. But when we become proud before the Lord, we cross God's boundaries and experience His discipline. Let's stand together. My prayer, Father, is that somebody might be in these three services, running down the sidelines. And keeps getting so close to the boundaries. And is prone to want to expand the width of the playing field. And not see your grace involved in all that you've provided. In all the freedom that's already there. The boundaries are signals, symbols of your authority and your grace. So I pray now that each one of us will take clearly your word, your moral law, and internalize your boundaries. Commit ourselves to your lordship. And experience the richness of freedom that is found in living for you, under you, by your grace. Speak to each heart. Minister to our needs. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.